Father, that now we come to your word, a word that created all that we see before us, a word incarnate in your son Jesus, words that brought the gospel to our ears, a word that changed our hearts, a word that has the power to change the hearts of any man in any place under any circumstances, a word that has the power to convict, to rebuke, to encourage. And so now I pray, Father, as we come to it on this topic, that you would reveal your wisdom to us that we may be your people in this world, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So two weeks ago, before we were so rudely interrupted by Terry and Donna's 50th anniversary, two weeks ago we opened the discussion on the topic of racism. And we have seen this issue once again rise to the surface in our nation. Now, when we talk about racism, what we're talking about here is the historical animosity and tension, particularly between those of European descent and those who are not. Now, we discussed, if we were going to have a conversation on this issue, what I believe the Scriptures bring before us is things we must consider. And we kind of gave two weeks ago an overview of that, of those things that we need to consider, such as we must consider and understand what the wisdom of the world says compared to the wisdom of Scripture. We must consider how God created the world and the distinctions that He put in it. And then lastly, we need to discuss what does unify, that being the need for repentance and belief. Now we come to Genesis, and we know the text that I read this morning uh, is not about racism particularly. Genesis is the book of beginnings, foundations. It answers the most fundamental questions we can have as a human being. Where did I come from? Where am I going? Why? Why is this life here? How do I explain the experiences that I have? We get the first Humans, the first sin, the first judgment of God, the first act of grace and mercy shown by God. Now, as a church, First Baptist Church here in Maxwell, Nebraska, we come to Genesis not just as a spiritual text. We don't just come to this and say, these are all just spiritual lessons for us to learn. We believe that we are looking at a historical text, explaining to us our beginnings, explaining to us why the world is what it is through a historical narrative. The Psalms agree with that. They all looked at God purposely made the world. The psalmist is going to bring that up multiple times. The prophets will argue from that position. So that's the approach we will take. So if we're going to come to an issue like racism, what better place to go to than to get the, to the, the fundamentals, the foundational truths of, of what it means to be human and what we should build our societies on. 
This week, so then we're going to dig deeper into the first principle or first idea that I felt like we needed to talk about, and that is a comparison between the wisdom of this world and the wisdom of Scripture as it pertains to an issue like this. And the conclusion that I think that I have come to, and the conclusion that I hope you come to, is that the world around us, and I mean that by the unbelieving, unregenerate, un spiritually filled world around us can neither diagnose a problem like this nor can it provide a solution for something like this and i want to show you why this morning number one number one the unbelieving world sees things through the lens of chaos and life without purpose the unbelieving world sees life through the lens of chaos and life without purpose, whereas the Bible does not teach such a thing. Here in Genesis, one fact is laid down in front of us after another. First, this God of the Bible is solely responsible for the existence of life. He created out of nothing. And then out of that, he gave it form and order. And then we come to the creation of people. He says, let us make man. Now that word, created, if you knew the original language, which you don't really need to know, but but to go a little deeper, that word created, when he says, let us create or make man, is the idea of an intended heart. He is doing something with intention. He is the, it is the idea of a master craftsman. The closest thing we would probably have in our society would be the vernacular or the technical language of a, a furniture maker. The idea is to take something and give it detail and intense, uh, intent and, and in purpose. And then after doing so, he takes this thing that he made with intent and design and detail and purpose, and he gives it privilege and blessing. So very quickly, we go from from nothing to form and to to order and and then to privilege and then to blessing. Now, we said two weeks ago, and I have said multiple times from up here, one of the needs that God has created inside every human being is a need to explain the world around them and the experiences they're having. Now why would, now let's think of the context here, Moses is writing the book of Genesis, he's writing this as the people of God are making their way to the promised land. Why would they need to know this? Well, where are they coming from, church? 500 years of captivity. Slavery in Egypt, surrounded by Egyptian ideas of how life came to be and the explanation uh, of experiences that one has in life. It's no coincidence, for example, that Egyptians believed at that time that the world came about through a combination of uh, of conflicts between the gods and the rising of water. Now let me ask you your geography question of the day. What phenomenon happens often in Egypt? The flooding of the Nile. 
And so they needed an explanation for their world, and so they came up with the idea that this world sprouted out because of conflicts between the gods and the, the abundance of water. And so the Egyptian, or the Israelites, the people of God, have grown up surrounded hearing this idea. And if you take the Egyptian idea, then all you have is a life that springs out of chaos and doesn't particularly have a direction or purpose that it is going. Now you then think about the fact that the people of God are going to go, uh, go occupy a land and they're going to be surrounded by neighbors who have their ideas about where people come from and explanations about life experiences. For example, one of their neighbors believed that all life came about when two gods or three gods or four gods, that, that they began to sword fight. I'm putting it very simplistically. And out of those swords came sparks, and those sparks landed in certain places, and from those sparks, life came about. Again, chaos. Life without purpose. Another believed that simply there was a conflict between the gods, and one god killed another god. Didn't have anything you could do with the dead body, so he left it there and outsprang the earth. We can think about all of the ancient stories. If you're of Nordic descent, your ancestors came up with stories about frost giants. It's where the modern mythology, or the mythology that we know of as uh, Thor came from and the idea of, 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 uh, of ice giants and, and fire gods. Let me ask you, Nordic country, is it cold or warm? Cold. So they came up with these ideas to explain the world around them. You take uh, cultures that were very much, uh, that, that went from place to place and encountered all sorts of different climates and geography and animals. And you'll find a people that typically explain their world through gods that look like those animals. And so the people of God, having been surrounded by the, uh, these ideas for multiple generations needed to be told by God exactly where they came from, where they were going. That in his heart, upon the, the moment that he created Adam, he had intent and purpose and, and love in that situation. You see, it's always been the case historically. That the world has always looked at the, the life around it and its explanations of that life around it has come from one or two ideas. Either the gods were crazy... And something happened, and here we are. Or, we have to explain the idea from there's no God at all. Elijah encountered the pagans, and he made fun of them. Maybe your God has wandered off. Maybe you need to go find him and bring him back. Maybe your God has fallen asleep. And he mocked the pagan gods as they, they cut themselves and made uh, uh, you know, uh, nonsensical noises. And they, they even killed babies to try and desperately get the attention of this god. It's the idea of a world that is built on chaos and without purpose. But of course, we come to the modern day, and modern man knows better, doesn't he? We are all just stardust. Many, many, many years ago, two stars collided, and out of that came life as we know it. Once again, stars will collide, life as we know it will be gone. And once again, stars will collide, and there will be new life. And this will continue on as it has for all of eternity. There's no purpose here. 
just chaos. But let me explain to you why that matters. Why, if you're looking at something through the lens of chaos and without purpose, it matters. I know it's 80 degrees out, and none of you want to think about winter again. But think back to this last winter. Let's say on Christmas morning you wake up. And, and there are millions of snowflakes coming down from the sky. It's Christmas Day. So you grab your cup of hot chocolate, you stand at the window, and you go, Lord, this is great. Clearly you are in control because we're supposed to have snow on Christmas if there's anything that Hallmark has taught us for the last 30 years. <laughs> and so we have this little heart of joy as we, we stand there and watch these millions of snowflakes come down and, and we have these Christmas songs in our heart and we, we praise God and we thank Him for this moment and then it comes to the end of April. And the same millions of snowflakes start coming down out of the sky. We begin to talk to each other like, boy, wonder what this weather's going to do next. And we start seeing a world, a weather pattern. This must just be chaos. It's not supposed to snow at the end of April. The mentality is entirely different. That same millions of snowflakes, we get up that morning. It doesn't get a cup of hot chocolate and hear the songs of joy. It gets our glare of hatred. But in Deuteronomy, God says to these same people that one of the most grievous sins that they could ever commit is to be blessed and to be blessed abundantly and to not joy in it. You see, the unbelieving world around us, as it views this world through the lens of chaos and life without purpose, has no reasons to, to joy. There's no reasons to, to, uh, to, to look at something and, and roll past that thing to, to give thanks for it. They can't do it because there's nothing past it, so they abuse it. I can't look at a plate of food. I can't look at my wife and roll past those things and give great, great uh, thanksgiving to my God because there is no God to give thanks to. And God said to the children of Israel, to his people, the judgment was going to come. When he told them later, he says, you know, many generations from now, the judgment's going to come. Because I'm going to still be blessing. You're still going to have food on your table. You're still going to be able to roll over and look at a beautiful wife. You're still going to have these things, but you're going to lose any sense of joy in it. And it will be a grievous sin. And it will bring judgment. The Bible rejects the idea of chaos and life without purpose. What it does tell us is of the 7 billion people standing on this planet right now, each is the work of a master craftsman. That in the abundance of certain character traits, in the abundance of certain skills, and even the abundance of certain physical features, all of that is thing, are things that we are to find joy in. All the form, all the order, all the work of God. So first of all, the reason this world cannot diagnose a problem like racism nor solve a problem like racism is because it views the world through the lens of chaos and life without purpose. The second reason this morning 
is that this world has always built, the unbelieving world has always built societies on division. We can call this perhaps the eternal myth of race. It is a, 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 an idea that the human, human mind has always conceived of, is this division among people. You look again at the passage, God says, let me make man in my own image. And the text says, in the image God had created him, male and female, he created them. So we get the affirmation God did create, he had a heart intention in what he was doing, but he had a blueprint he was following. He says, let me make man in my own image. So what does that mean, the image deo, as the Latin is? What does it mean to be made in the image of God? Well, say that, right? That person's made in the image of God. Do you know what even you're talking about? Well, we know it's not a physical description. We don't look physically look like God because the Bible tells us that God is a spirit. So what is this? What is this image of God? Well, theologians for generations have called it this. It is the communicative attributes of God. What it is about God that he can express through us. This image, for example, God has a spiritual life, so does man. God has moral and ethical sensibilities, so do human beings. God is conscious. He is logical, meaning he, uh, he is aware, and so are humans. God has rulership. He gives rulerships to human beings. These are all what, again, theologians have described as communicative attributes. Things that we have the capability of expressing. A man and woman come together in matrimony, have the ability to do what God do, communicates that by creating another human being. The image of God then bears with it some responsibility. The responsibility... Of representation. Because that means we, quite naturally, everything that is coming out of us is meant to reflect upon God himself. So when we do well, we don't amplify ourselves, we amplify God. And when we do poorly, we blaspheme him. Then we go a few chapters over in Genesis and we watch this outbreak of these communicative attributes as suddenly man is going into the ground and bringing out bronze and turning it into plows and plowing his field. And we see the beginnings of music theory and we see the, uh, the subjection of livestock. All of these expressions. Now again, the question would be, why do the people of God need to know this before they go into the promised land? Why do they need to know that they were made in the image of God? Well, the Bible tells us that all the law in Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy, all the law is built on two principles. The first one being that the God of the universe is the ultimate sovereign. The God is in control. The second, that your neighbor's life is valued. Because even Egypt had a caste system. We only go a few chapters over in Genesis and we find that already certain people with certain characteristics were valued above other people with certain characteristics. Certain people were already considered expendable. We see an immediate degrading of the female. The immediate picking of winners and losers. Right out of the gate. 
Now, the term racism has been around for a very long time. Well before the animosity and the hostility that we experience in our nation between those of European descent and those who are not. Just four or five hundred years ago, people would walk around and say, well, there is the Irish race and the Welsh race and the French race and the Jewish race and the African race. And people would walk around. You can, you can read about this. I love history. I read about it all the time. And people would go out and say, I don't like Irishmen, Irishmen. I'm sorry. Are there any Irishmen this morning? Irish people, they have tempers. I don't like Irish people. Welsh people are stupid. French, the, the French race is arrogant. Long before any sort of, uh, of racial animosity in our country uh, uh, between the two groups that I have mentioned, there was already animosity between groups. This is what is called malice. To hate something that God doesn't hate. It is the most fundamental sin in racism. But the problem was, 400 years ago, you could meet an Irishman who didn't have a temper. You could meet a brilliant Welshman. You could meet a humble Frenchman, maybe. You could meet a Jew that was broke. You used to believe that Africans were one of the laziest people on the planet. You could meet a hardworking African. And then you would have a conundrum. You could, you could meet people. You could meet, a, uh, you could meet a, a Welshman that perhaps wasn't so bright, but worked hard to learn. You could, you could meet an Irishman who, had, uh, who once did have a bad temper, but maybe, maybe met the Lord and it changed his life. Those things would happen. Now the problem is, the moment you begin to base malice on the color of one's skin, is that your enemy cannot take that off. You can't change that attribute about them. What enters in at that moment is the second most fundamental sin, and the issue of racism is not just malice, but the introduction of vainglory. You see, vainglory is nothing than a megaphone for malice. I am better than you. It is the most petty form of pride. The point here is this. The unbelieving world has always struggled with malice and vainglory. It has always had the idea of divisions in its mind. The unbelieving world around us has always desired to reduce the value of its neighbor. And that's what makes what I see going on in our country so sad. Because only the world in their foolishness would try to solve a problem like racism using the tools that caused it. Number three. The third reason the wisdom of the world can neither diagnose nor solve a problem like this in comparison to the wisdom of Scripture. Number three, it is because of the myth of power. So we've seen the myth of chaos and purposelessness. We've seen the myth of, uh, of division among the race, justifying the sin of malice, magnifying it using the sin of vainglory. We come now to the myth of power in Genesis chapter 3. 
We know what's happened here, right? Eve has partaken of the fruit she should not have. She was tempted by the serpent. And here we have, starting in verse 14, the decree of God as he deals with it. And if you go through this text, what you should, one of the things you should notice is that each of these decrees come with a humbling. The serpent has to crawl on his belly and live the rest of his life knowing that one day his head will be crushed. The woman is now told that she must endure the pain or feel the magnification of the pain of childbirth and find difficulty with harmony with her husband. The man told the world... The dirt of the land will no longer be cooperative with him. And the two of them, the woman and the man, are told that they are going to die. To dust they will return. You see, the serpent tempted Eve with a desire to be like God. To be something other than one under authority. Now again, we ask the question, why do the people of God need to know this? Again, because the law is entirely, the the desires of God for them can be summed down into two parts. That God is the ultimate authority, that their neighbor's life has value. I was sharing with somebody the other day, as we've been going through the book of James on Wednesday night. One of the things that James tells us is it causes division among people in a society or even in a home or in a relationship is the moment a person decides they are going to be something other than a person under the authority of God. James tells us this is the the root of division. Jesus taught us this, right? All the law, all of God desires for us can be summed up into two parts. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. One theologian many, many years ago described that those two ideas like this. To love the Lord your God is like the sun. The sun that shines. And to love your neighbor as yourself is the moon. Now let me ask you, class, where does the moon get its light? From the sun. And so the moon will never shine again if the sun were to go out. So at the, the basis of division, like I said, is the, the, the desire to pull ourselves out from underneath the authority of God. And Jesus tells us that the moment we do that, the sun goes out, and so the moon no longer shines. The most prominent theory out there today which our young people will probably encounter as they go out to university and college. The most prominent idea about race today is known as critical race theory. Now, in a very, very simple way to say it, critical race theory teaches that if you are born a minority, then you are automatically a victim. And therefore, any aggression, because you are a victim... Any aggression towards your oppressor is morally justified. So riots, murder, morally justified. Stealing hate speech, morally justified. The only way to, uh, uh, to escape, if you are the oppressor and you are having riots and murders and stealing and hate speech sent against you, the only way to escape this now 
is then to become subservient to the victim. You may or may not have seen the news in an incident at Starbucks. Two young African-American men were arrested. And the cries of racism and Starbucks shutting down its stores to have, uh, have training. Well, in response to that, one African-American young man took his phone and he went into Starbucks. He went up to the barista and he said, your, your company's racist. I want a free cup of coffee. And the barista, a young, clearly European descendant woman, said, oh, you're right. Here's your free cup of coffee. Now, he made that video to mock the foolishness of critical race theory. For nobody at that Starbucks was involved in the other incident. He himself had never been a victim of anything. And she herself never oppressed anything. You see, critical race theory is all about coming back to the need for power. It is the theory of Karl Marx. That the problem in society is that the wrong people have power. This is the, this is the lens by which every news broadcaster out there, I don't care if it's liberal or conservative, they see the world through this critical race theory. This is how it is addressed by all of the unbelieving world. And the reality is, all they are doing is telling another group of people, that it is morally justifiable for them to remove themselves from the authority of God. There will be no light of the moon without the sun. If we are ever going to love our neighbor, if we are ever going to get to a place as a people, and you heard me talk about this two weeks ago, I understand And I clearly see that there are issues of privilege and there are issues among us as European descendants that must be dealt with. But we will never love our neighbor as we should until we put ourselves back under the authority of God. Until there is an understanding that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. There will be no full and true love for our neighbor. But malice and vainglory will still continue to run roughshod over our lives. We will continue to be distorted by sin. We must repent of this. So, this morning all I wanted to show you is this. The unbelieving world does not have the ability to diagnose and treat a problem like this. But the wisdom of God does. It requires us to come back to the basics. To recognize that there is purpose and design and intent. And all the distinctions that we see around us, these are all works of the Master. That the image of God weighs heavily upon each human life, which creates the idea of of showing how malice and vainglory are not just sinful, but blasphemous. And we must not be tempted with power like they are tempted with power. Power, as this world sees it, is always the solution to the problem. As God always tells us, it is always the problem. Without embracing the light of the sun, 
S-O-N. There will be no light for the moon. Without putting ourselves in submission to the sun, S-O-N, Jesus Christ, there will be no love for our neighbor. Let us pray. Father, we thank you, we praise you for these most fundamental, foundational truths that we were made out of your heart with intention and purpose and design each and every of the seven billion souls on this planet. And each carries the value of your image upon their life. And Father, that we, need, we be not tempted by power in whatever form it, came, it comes in, but remind ourselves that we are a people under authority so that sun may shine so that the light of the moon may be bright. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.